In a world where points depend on hinges, there are hinge points inside us all. History on a Segway. It's overdetermined. We are the points that our hinges have been seeking. What this podcast asks is what if? Agriculture, fail or epic win? What if it was Johnny Bango Pit? What if the Ottomans had AK 47s? Maybe climate change was a good idea. What if the Ottomans had lightsabers? What if the buffalo killed the What if Santa Claus was real, like an actual guy who gave presents every year? This is Hinge Points. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Hinge Points. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with Matt Chrisman, and we are excited to welcome to the podcast today Patrick Wyman. You probably already know him, but if you don't, Patrick is the author of a really excellent book that recently came out titled The Verge, Reformation, Renaissance, and 40 Years That Shook the World, and he's also a podcaster, uh, and his podcast is Tides of History, and it's really excellent, uh, and everyone who is interested in history, and I assume you are because you are listening listening to it should absolutely check it out. And today, we are going to talk about a really, I would say, one of the most important hinge points in history, and that concerns Martin Luther. Nailing a notice to the door of the church was not unusual. Among those waiting to be forgiven and blessed, none could know that this document would become one of the most widely read in all history. The original poster, I believe, Patrick, as you called him, uh, who was very crucial to shaping uh, Europe Christianity and everything in between. Um, so what we're going to suppose on this podcast is what if Martin Luther didn't become Martin Luther? What if he passed away as a young man and how that might have affected things? But before we do that, Patrick, could you set the scene about why individually, as a person, as a man, Martin Luther is so important to history? So I would say the the fact that I view Martin Luther as being this individually important um, should stand out because I am not an individuals matter all that much in history type of person. I think that the the vast majority of the historical figures with whom we're familiar that we tend to think like ah this person this person mattered a lot like cotton inventor of the cotton gin for example I think most people are completely replaceable. I think if you look at this exact same period Christopher Columbus completely replaceable with any one of a number of you know ships captains who was wandering around the the ports of Western Europe around 1490 uh, who uh, was into who was into slavery and making a profit no difference at all to the historical outcome Martin Luther is special for a few reasons first of all because of his ability to write in both Latin and the vernacular he could speak to both popular audiences and to the educated elite across Europe which meant that instead of his complaints about the church um, sticking among the kind of educated elite of people who were interested in that stuff, an educated elite that had existed for centuries. Um, you know, the church was always in the process of being reformed, but usually it's stuck within this relatively small, highly educated international group. Luther's ability to speak in punchy, entertaining terms to a mass audience, and not just to speak to that audience, but literally to create it through selling printed pamphlets to them. He created an entire reading public that was an audience for reform in a way that could not have existed if it was, say, Erasmus, who was the second most popular author of this particular period of time. Erasmus was not talking to your average German burger um, who was, you know, sleeping off a hangover, walks down to the market and, and is thinking about, you know, I got to check the I got to check the exchange rates. I got to see what the price of pork is today. And oh, maybe I'll pick up a pamphlet. That guy's not picking up an Erasmus pamphlet. He would pick up a Martin Luther pamphlet because he would know there'd be some cool woodcut illustrations in there, probably the probably showing the devil. Um, there's going to be there's going to be some really entertaining language. This is going to be a thing that it's not just that it speaks to this person's concerns about his soul, which he does have, but also that um, it's going to entertain him. And printers know that Martin Luther's name sells. So the early reformation 
at least, is as much a product of Martin Luther's individual ability to write and reach audiences as it is about his particular theological concerns. And his kind of pugnacious attitude, the way that he approaches debate and church reform, winds itself into the DNA of the Reformation in a way that it would not have necessarily if there were another driving figure. Like, Luther was a really unpleasant guy, and he understood the world in oppositional terms. And Sounds like the original poster. (laughs) He he very he really is. Luther would have thrived on Twitter. And I know like we make we make that joke, but he really would have his entire way of understanding the world emerged from oppositional thinking. It's he wasn't like John Calvin, where he writes this big, constantly updated book of his theology where he's thinking talking about, you know, this is what I think about this and this is what I think about this. It was very much like Luther would write a thing, somebody would write another thing, Luther would get really mad about that and then write his response. So if you're trying to piece together what Luther actually thought about any individual theological issue, you have to go through this like sea of polemic and him just being really mad at first this cardinal and then this priest and then this other guy, like Luther being mad is not separable from the theological meat of the early Reformation. And Luther being mad is what one of the things that makes people want to read him. Exactly. And as we said, that is why Luther is not uh, fungible the way that Columbus is. Because yes, mm-hmm. as, as uh, Patrick actually wrote a really uh, good article about Columbus pointing out that like he is replacement level in any way, like in every way, like he is as talented uh, you know, as able as any of those guys who are running out trying to make money uh, in the Atlantic. Whereas when you look at the people who end up uh, uh, being called to arms by Luther and forming the first rank of reformers, there's not one of them who you could imagine doing what Luther did. Uh, I mean, my God, Phil- Philip Melikenthon, the biggest <laughs> nerd in world history, just this this like asthmatic little dork, like who who shrinks from all confrontation. She sure as hell isn't going to be the first one blasting the trumpet against the whore of Babylon. So that makes me think, you know, yes, like we we have there are very few individuals in history who we can really put a lot consequentially on their shoulders, and we can just kind of agree Martin Luther is one of them. So what if? In that July night of 1505, when he was walking back to his hometown after uh, from his studies in law at Erfurt, and he was caught in a rainstorm. And uh, in our timeline, uh, he runs under a tree, he's almost hit by lightning, and he prays to God in that moment uh, to save him and promises that if he will, he will become a monk. Plötzlich schlägt der Blitz direkt neben ihm ein. Der starke Luftdruck schleudert ihn zu Boden. In Todesangst ruft er Hilf, heilige Anna, und ich will ein Mönch werden. And then he survives the night and does in fact go on to defy his father's wishes and uh, become a theology student. Uh, now that is probably an embellished account that he added things to later to sort of, you know, burnish his legend. Uh, but let's assume that like he was caught in a terrifying thunderstorm that made him sort of think about his soul for a minute. Let's say that instead of him hiding behind under that tree until the, the storm ended, he absolutely gets a response from God in the form of a lightning bolt to the forehead and uh, just is dead there in the field. <laughs> so what about what happens in a Europe in the uh, early 15th, uh, uh, in the early 16th century? With the same material conditions that we have now, with with uh, the rising commercial uh, economies of the uh, cities of Europe, uh, rising literacy along with the uh, adoption of of printing technology and, and a print media, and uh, a real current, a constantly churning current of resistance to the church's secular and temporal authority. We have that same um, conditions, but we do not have this singular genius to channel it the way that he did. What what do we think would be different? So I think the biggest difference is going to be that church reform does not become a mass popular movement mm-hmm. in the way that it does with Martin Luther. I, Patrick, I think maybe before we continue, mm-hmm. could you actually explain to people who might not be aware of the church was able to very successfully integrate previous yes. polemic, right? Yeah. So, like, something is different with Luther. Could you just give a brief yeah, precinct yeah, yeah. on how that worked? Absolutely, yeah, sorry. Um, so, basically, the his- the whole history of the medieval church is the history of reform movements. There's always somebody in some exactly. corner of Christendom saying, you know, we're not doing this right, uh, this particular belief is not, like, the bishops aren't taking care of their flocks, the monks are having sex with too many women, um, you know, there's, there's too much luxury happening here. Like every monastic order that you've heard of um, is is 
emerges in response to some complaint about the direction the church is going. That's how the Franciscans show up. That's how the Dominicans show up. That's how the entire concept of a friar emerges out of medieval dissatisfaction. The, 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 the concept of sacraments, like actual, like defined sacraments emerges out of these reform movements. The concept of heresy emerges out of reform movements. And basically, it, the difference between a reformer and a heretic really depends on who your local bishop is, who the pope is at the time, and what kind of the prevailing political conditions are. So sometimes, you know, these guys end up becoming saints of the church. That's that's what happens to St. Francis, even though almost immediately his whole, like, no property thing gets, uh, gets ignored. <laughs> that one's uh, pushed um, to the side. Yeah, literally, literally within uh, within years of his death, that one's pushed to the side. Um, but then, you know, you end up with guys like Jan Hus uh, who are uh, who get burned at the stake. And sometimes you get cases where you have a where you have somebody who is condemned in their lifetime and then celebrated as a saint after their death. Um, so, like, there's really not a lot of rhyme or reason to this stuff. It's really kind of a, a local thing. The way I like to think of it is that the medieval church is a big tent. Um, there is an incredible amount of variation contained within medieval Christendom. So the church has to be a big tent. You've got everything from, you know, monk warriors who were beheading Muslim captives on the deck of a ship to illiterate priests with, with seven children living out somewhere in the French countryside. Like that's all part of the church. That's all part of, that's all under the same umbrella. So what makes the church a genius institution that is incredibly flexible and durable over the course of the Middle Ages is that it's able to channel reforming energy, is that it's able to say, yeah, you know what, we are going to do this a little bit different. You know what, okay, yeah, we're, we're going to let this king do this particular thing here, uh, and we're going we're gonna to rein in this king over here. So, so in Spain, for example, by, by this time, they're basically running a national church with very little input as to how things are run. Like the Spanish Inquisition is a royal institution. It is not a papal institution. Um, so I think in the absence of Martin Luther, we still end up with a more nationally divided church and much more nationally fragmented religious landscape. But it ends up looking a lot more like what happens in England with uh, Henry VIII, where you just have kings slowly taking more and more and more authority away from the church, you know, take it, taking monastic lands, taking this and that, taking the ability to appoint bishops, and the pope becoming a less relevant figure. I think it's harder for the pope to exercise any sort of authority in a more politically and, uh, and theologically fragmented Europe with the printing press, but it doesn't become the kind of mass evangelical movements that we see with Luther. Okay, so that, that raises an interesting question. If you do get, like, by necessity, these, these top-down reformations, which I think we all agree would be necessary because that centrifugal pull away from the centralizing authority of the, of the Pope, that's happening regardless of whether Luther exists is, and, and the, 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 in the, you know, uh, explosion of uh, state conflict that this period uh, sees is going to necessitate that. Uh, but if you don't have a mass evangelical movement that is uh, that is communicated through popular literature, does that mean that uh, the religious distinction between the reformers and people who prefer the old way ends up being polarized along like class and and uh, and like the folk religion of Europe everywhere remains Catholicism, while uh, this sort of you know uh, nationally aligned church is the domain of uh, like the the, the uh, bourgeois and landowners who got together to uh, resist papal authority in the first place. So I, I think it's going to vary an incredible amount depending on where you are in Europe. I mean, and, you know, like appealing to regionalism is 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 kind of a cop-out in this period, but really, like, I think there would be a huge difference depending on whether you were sitting in the city of London and you've got an active Bishop of London and Archbishop of Canterbury sitting right there trying to ride herd on what the, on, on what the common people are doing in terms of their religious beliefs versus, you know, out in the Cotswolds where nobody's really paying attention and you've still got people with copies of, uh, of, you know, Wycliffe's writings that have been passed down for 150 years, right? I think that it's going to depend a lot on where royal reach goes and where kind of a national church's reach can go. Because, you know, even in increasingly religiously centralized England during the, the, the English Reformation, you know, there are places where there are still tons and tons of, of secret Catholics for generations and generations and generations afterwards. And I think that, but, but I think that you're right in pointing to a class dimension to that, to the extent that the class dimension is 
is mapping onto these increasing divides that we see at this time between urban and rural, between um, uh, between an increasingly commercialized and internationalized city folk um, who are who are more and more tied to the crown versus what's happening out in the countryside, which is a much much different uh, kind of thing throughout the 16th and 17th century. So another crucial thing is do you what's it's interesting to imagine a Europe without the religious wars because I we talked on an earlier episode about how one of the major reasons that Europe winds up doing colonialism effectively is because those wars really I think those are the first early modern instantiation of them force an incredible uh jump in technological development and military development and navigation and et cetera et cetera so what do you think or to, to both of you do you think you still get that violence which is so crucial to the to the european story after the uh 16th century i think that is the question it's 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 not it is where does that violence reappear How, what is what is its guise because i don't i think you have to assume it's still there because all the social pressures are there luther just provided a specific conduit for them and a language for them like the uh the peasant revolts that are kind of triggered in part by uh the new evangelical movement of the 1820s that all of those deep conflicts that were coming to a boil between uh peasants and uh and landlords during this period of like deep crisis and 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 uh spiraling inflation and all this that's still going to come out somewhere and i guess the question becomes if if it's not going to be religious do we get an acceleration of like the articulation of a like a secular politics a secular mass politics that took longer to develop perhaps because it took it had to go through its like religious uh transformation first i i kind of wonder now that we're talking about this and as we're getting into it, it, the language of mass resistance throughout the Middle Ages was already very heavily couched in religious right. terms, yeah. right? And so I'm kind of wondering whether you end up with a, a, whether like, okay, so let's take Luther out of the equation. Is there does is there going to be a Thomas Munzer at some point? Right. Is there, like, is there a reformation there, from below where you replace yeah. – Luther's, you know, singular genius and ability to translate information using this new technology with like smaller nodes around guys who aren't the genius that Luther was, but are able to communicate a similar, uh, like religious idea and truth uh, through preaching. And yeah. by the fact that there are more of them more embedded in like peasant communities that would base and they would like uh, find out about each other and resonate off of one another's messages, you would have potentially like a revol a reformation from below that sort of bypasses the 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 gatekeeping functions of literacy. Mm -hmm. I, I think that makes a lot of sense given so so it's kind of hard for us to imagine this now in our present in our present day, but to the extent that there were celebrities at in in you know kind of folk popular culture in the middle ages they were often preachers they mm -hmm. were they were traveling preachers especially dominicans who were who were known to have a gift for this type of thing and they were multimedia events right so you you have handbills printed beforehand saying you know we're going to have a we're going to have a, a good get together we're going to have a we're going to put together a sermon um it's going to be a real rollicking one we're going to have some fire and brimstone and then we're all going to get drunk afterward this is great this is like, like this is uh, like they would do like plays and shit right and like performances and puppets and stuff. This is this is like the meat of social and folk life in the European countryside at the beginning of the 16th century. Like preachers yeah, early are, mass pre culture type stuff. Exactly. That's exactly the case. And after and afterward, the texts of these sermons are often printed and and distributed. And so they have a, the sermons have a life beyond the immediate face to face interactions that go along with them. And so I, I think that you're that you're very much onto something, Matt, when you're when you're talking about a reformation from below, because those guys aren't going away. Right. Like they're they're embedded in the fabric of society as it exists. And, and, and like Thomas Munster, for example, was was I was right, was shaking the fucking trees and shit before Luther's mm -hmm. uh, polemics came out. Yeah. And there's there's a real argument among scholars as to what debt Munzer owes Luther. Mm -hmm. Right. And and what the relationship is between them, because you're going to get Munzer figures and like it. Given the social pressures of the time that you referenced, like there's no way that that doesn't get couched in apocalyptic language and right. the language of what people owe to each other as the children of God. And, and then this, this just, I think, exactly, you're right. You have this language already, but the the genius of Luther, Patrick, as you've expressed it to me, is this 
iterative ability, this ability to never stop posting, and and this ability, I think, to keep on ratcheting up exponentially the fever of the social pressures that we're talking about. So the question is, I think we all agree that that's going to have to have a valve or some sort of escape valve. It's going to have to be expressed. But even as we talk about it, I don't see a clear direction about how that would be expressed because without that iteration, you don't get that same emotional resonance that Luther himself provided, which is why the, the Reformation turns into this hyper-violent event. Well, the thing is, it's a question of where the violence is going to go because I, I I really don't think that you... Uh, you can subtract any of the actual passion that went into the religious wars and the violence of them from people like all along the class structure of Europe. But absent like a, a popular reformation, I, I don't know, perhaps that violence expresses itself uh, in like the more explicit uh, class antagonistic uh, models of, you know, the medieval uh, English peasant revels when Adam, uh, you know, when Adam, what was it? When Adam squatted or something, and Eve Span went there was an Englishman, that kind of thing, and then also you know uh, Munster and stuff. Like, do you get a, uh, a essentially a religiously infused war against the ruling classes of early modern late feudal Europe? And Patrick, this is my question to you. Then, just to build off Matt, maybe you could ex- explicate the relationship you see between the Reformation and very early capitalism. Okay, so I want to I want to come back to something real quick before we get into the Reformation and capitalism, which is Luther's relationship to authority, which I think kind of lies at the heart of the the distinction between popular and top down. Like one of the reasons why Luther ceases to be such a key figure after a really early point, like I think we're inclined to see Luther as the key figure of the Reformation, but after 1525 and definitely after 1530, other people are far more important. Luther increasingly becomes a regional figure. He's still read very widely in Germany, but but not really anywhere else. The Reformation kind of moves beyond him. You can see this in the numbers of printed texts, the numbers of his the numbers of editions. Like up through 1525, Luther is 10 times more popular. He's printed in 10 times more editions than the next most popular reforming author, right? After that, the the numbers drop off dramatically. Three quarters of the editions of Luther's work are printed before 1530, right? And part of the reason for that is because when the Peasants' Rebellion happens in 1525, Luther takes a very strong stand against them, and his his popularity dramatically diminishes. There's no way for the image that Luther likes to portray, likes to likes to um, put out there of himself as this kind of kindly pastor who's looking after his flock. You can't square that with him saying that all of the peasants should be killed because. Blood-sucking rebels, right? Like so, Luther comes down very strongly on the side of authority. He's always got in the back of his mind this idea that anything coming from the bottom is inherently suspect, and that people need to be controlled. That authority exists for a good reason. Right? And you could see just very quickly how Protestantism morphs into modern secular liberalism. It's there from the exactly. beginning. That skepticism yeah. of the masses. I'm very glad you brought that up. It's there in Luther. Mm-hmm. It is central to understanding what made Luther in particular, attractive as a as a reforming ally to the German princes, right? That if on the one hand you have Thomas Münzer, you know that you can't keep going as you're going. You know that these reforming currents exist. If you're going to be, if you're going to put your heart and your head behind some kind of church reform and, you know, maybe squeeze a few uh, secularized monasteries out of the deal, like, then Luther is the one you're going with. You're not going with the, you're not going with Andreas Karlstadt. You're not going with Huldrych Zwingli. You're going with you're going with Luther, who has a firm respect for authority, like baked into baked into his perspective. And so I think that's another thing that makes Luther unique is that unlike a lot of these other reforming figures, he's very much on the side of existing social structures and existing power structures. And that makes you you wonder, like so much of that class conflict that was coming to a head during that period ends up getting vented into this uh, holy war against an imagined other who is defined in religious terms. And that means that uh, so much of the of the common misery of being exploited under this failing system gets turned into a narrative of religious oppression rather than a, a, a recognition of one's uh, subject position. And Luther shows up at the perfect moment to define the coming crisis in these religious terms. But if there is no Luther... There is still the crisis, and there are still going to be people among 
the grassroots of, of, of uh, European society trying to make sense of what is happening. And they're going to come to a completely different understanding of the religious dimension of the conflict they're in that might, might not look across borders and, and, and foreigners to make sense of what's going to be happening to them, but actually look up at, at a, a ruling class that has essentially created a, a counterfeit Christianity that they cannot relate to. Because they feel they all have defined themselves as Christians, as Christianity was in, uh, uh, introduced to them as children, but they cannot square it with the world around them. And without Luther to to essentially uh, mystify them, uh, perhaps they fight a war with all of the passion and coordinating capacity of of the wars of religion. But uh, yeah, as like a roiling series of of peasant rebellions that have like a social cohesion because they're around a fully coherent class identified uh, conception of Christianity. And of course, Engels pointed to the 1525, you know, rebellions as the first instantiation of class conflict. And so, Patrick, I, I, I wonder if you could talk about the relationship to capitalism. Like, imagine a world where the purchasing of indulgences, the problem wasn't the indulgences, but the purchasing itself. What what relationship do you see Luther playing in the formation of the modern capitalist world? Okay, so I think the first thing you got to know is that Luther is himself a product of that world from the very beginning, right? So Luther's father is a mine owner and operator. Um, so his his father from the very beginning is embedded in this world where everybody is taking out loans, where everything is increasingly financialized, and and, and frankly, where small time operators are being squeezed out by larger and larger ones. Like this is it's not a coincidence that. Luther as a figure, and, like, and Luther never trusted um, loans. I think that's you could probably look that as part of as part of his like kind of ongoing conflict with his father, who was an incredibly unpleasant man by all accounts. Like that, Luther Luther called uh, he was offered like shares at one point as a as like a financial reward. He's like he called it Spielgeld. He called it like play money. He didn't think it was real. So Luther is already a product of this world. What makes Luther able to have a voice is the fact that printing presses exist, and printing presses are the absolute perfect encapsulation of kind of late 15th, early 16th century merchant merchant capitalism in that they are entirely speculative investments, right? They require high initial capital. They are, they're financed via loans. The When you put out a book or an edition, that is a speculative thing. You have to estimate what the market for that is going to be. It is, it is a speculative venture that requires money upfront. So, printing is of its nature kind of a reflection of this. Luther is himself a reflection of this world. Now, I think when we're talking about how we get from Luther to capitalism, I, I, I think like the people that he that he's speaking to, the people who identify most strongly with Luther are going to become the bourgeoisie. And I think if anything, an identification with Luther's message as consumers of his message in print form is what creates a class consciousness among these people, that they are that they are literate, they're highly urban, they're prosperous, they're upwardly mobile, they have an identity of their own that is tied to existing class structures. They may not be overly fond of their lords, but they do a lot of self-governance because they're part of city institutions, right? Like these are these are urban folk who are used to governing themselves. So they're not that concerned about the exactions of lords because, you know, they're kind of living in their own independent world of free cities, right? So I think that's that's Luther's role if we're thinking about capitalism is like the bourgeoisie learns to understand what it is through reading Luther and through understanding that they're not the people at the bottom of the social spectrum. They're not the people at the top. They have their own distinct identity and their own distinct place in society. So in some sense, what we're positing here or what we're asking is, is there a bourgeoisie absent Luther? So do, do, do the social forces that engender the Reformation – um, and through Luther engender what what sounds like to me in the earliest forms of liberalism um, that morphs into a secularism and the bourgeoisie. Do those social forces necessarily result in the in in a bourgeoisie? And if they don't, what type of world are we imagining? I don't think they necessarily end up in a bourgeoisie that thinks of itself as a reading public. That that to me is the really key thing. That if you if you think that mass media plays an important role in the development of 
bourgeoisie as a class moving into the moving into the 17th and 18th centuries. I don't think it's a guarantee that they are readers of mass market information sans Luther. I think that's the key distinction that like you can't overstate the extent to which printing as an industry came into its own because of selling Luther's books, right? The average person, the average non uh, nerd, basically, who is going about their day trying to get those stacks in the urban environment and who was literate had no conception of why he should sit down and read for for uh, edification or pleasure. It was not something that would have occurred to him. They needed the specific context of this guy speaking in in lucid and entertaining, aesthetically pleasing prose telling you, hey, you dummy, you're going to go to hell if you don't change X, Y, and Z. It's like a direct, it's a lightning bolt to like the, the basal stem of like identity. It's, it's, gonna, it's going to give you a new, uh, a new understanding of self that is going to be wired into this new, yeah, collective consciousness of, of reading public. Yeah. And it's not that it comes out of nowhere, right? Because like, if you're, if you're an educated, you know, kind of up again, upwardly mobile clerk type living in Nuremberg in, in 1510. So before Luther is putting all this stuff out there, you're, you can read, you read account books, you, you're, you're taking your, um, you know, you're, you're doing, you're doing double entry bookkeeping. Um, you're looking at, you're looking at handbills that are posting new laws or regulations from the city council. Uh, you know, you, ha- you probably own a book of hours, right? So you can do your, so you can do your devotions and, you know, depending on how high up you are on the the urban social scale, that may, may be a more or less rich volume. So you can read. It's not that you have no concept of reading as a thing, but reading for pleasure and reading for edification. Yes. That is something that is entirely foreign to you. Maybe, maybe you read a text of a sermon that you, that, that you heard was a real banger, right? Like maybe that's what you're, that's what you're reading. But Luther is the one who's creating the idea and through the printers who is creating the actual genre of text where, sure, you go down to the marketplace and you're doing your haggling and you think, oh, yeah, I've got a couple of coins in my pocket. Let me grab this. Let me grab the the hot new Luther off the presses. Like, that's not a thing that existed before. And Luther creates the 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 concept of a reading public that is that is going to exist as a market for those kinds of texts afterwards. So I think if we erase Luther, and we erase that structure that, that creates this reading public, supercharges the creation of this, this self-conscious bourgeois, uh, and also divides the uh, oppressed peasantry along religious lines at precisely the moment that they're going to come into the, their most deeply crisis-riddled re- uh, relationship to the mode of production they're enmeshed in. Uh, instead of that, you might get sort of a, a yeah reformation from below that... Uh, that must like eventually come into some sort of conflict with uh, uh, both the bourgeois as they exist and and the landed aristocracy. And uh, I mean, when I imagine that, I I kind of think of have as we've talked about in the previous episodes of this uh, season. What you're imagining here is a, a best case scenario where the escape valves that seem to emerge at every crucial point of crisis in in European social order starting at this period of like this technological inflection point. There are these moments where, where the, the social energies are becoming uncontainable within the system as it exists. Uh, and, and instead of that leading to a, a, the, the final like heightening of contradictions and conflict between classes, a new model emerges, a new, a new social phenomenon emerges to redirect that. First, it's Protestantism. Then the greater uh, capitalist urbanizing project, and of course, then the the crowning glory, the colonial project in North America, specifically, and it, all of those things seem to emerge at the precise historical nexus to preserve the contradictions within this thing, so that they can essentially be worked out while remaining, while while retaining the uh, existing social order and status quo, so that. By the time you have capitalism take over for feudalism, it is not with class revolt. It is with this slow, over-the-centuries process of the ruling land-based classes being essentially bought out of their position by the bourgeois uh, and being integrated to some extent into the broader bourgeois dictatorship. And that is why, you know, the working class uh, resistance to capitalism when it emerges is at every point stymied similarly because this process continues throughout the history of uh, the modern Europe. 
and so I think what I see looking back at all these hinge points is the best case scenario is one where uh, the world got to meet itself on e- relatively equal terms. You know what I mean? Like, I think the capitalism is probably an inevitable outgrowth of human interaction on Earth. Uh, but if it had have developed in a globalized context, I think uh, it's uh, the likelihood that it could have been overcome without the complete destruction of like the biome uh, becomes much more possible. And what's really interesting to me is that we're imagining a world where the mind space of capitalism isn't developed in quite the same way. Mm-hmm. That the sort of when you develop a reading public, you're essentially fostering and encouraging a form of abstract thinking, yeah. which I think a lot of scholars have shown is directly linked to the rise of early modern capitalism and, and imagining new types of worlds. Yeah. But that has also been used in some way to organize working classes, of yeah. course, because mass literacy was also crucial. But if absent that sort of what would be this d- d- dissemination of literacy or the dissemination of a particular type of very abstract mind space, do you actually have a capitalism that is more organically connected to limits of geography, to limits of, of social relations and things like that, which to me is really interesting because capitalism is ultimately about the who controls the means of production, but it's also a way of knowing, right? A way of viewing the world. I think a lot of it is going to end up being the same because so much of the kind of mental architecture of capitalism is rooted in who owes who what. And that extends way up and down the social spectrum when we're talking about the late 15th and early 16th centuries. Like, I think there's there are really good arguments to be made that these that what we understand as a capitalist mindset was really widely shared across the social spectrum in that in that period of time that um you know i i owe uh, like that everybody is thinking in monetary terms even if they don't have cash on hand they're thinking in terms of who owes who what land is a widely fungible commodity again, across the social spectrum. It can be bought, sold, leased, um, put to use in a whole variety of different ways. Like, it's not that common lands don't exist anymore, but I think that even a common land is understood to have a specific value. So I think that's going to be there regardless. And so, so I think you're going to end up with something that, that is, that looks like capitalism. But I, I mean, frankly, I find one of the most annoying aspects of the early modern mindset is the overwhelming moralism of it and the the kind of sense of self-righteous superiority uh, that, that you get whenever you're reading any sort of early modern capitalists talk about the like like self-identified capitalists talk about themselves and talk about their their understanding of the world. And like I think there's a chance that without the Protestant Reformation, without the creation of that particular kind of reading public, you end up with a slightly more humble way of understanding the world and coming to terms with it. Right. Because what Protestantism give, did was it gave people essentially permission to be unchristian to one another. Yeah. Because it introduced gradations into uh, like being a Christian that hadn't existed uh, uh, under the Catholic Church. And that therefore allowed you to uh, rank people by their, their uh, piousness and therefore accrue different uh, degrees of, you know, social uh, social obligation to them based on that. And so you could you could rip people off, which you have to do if you're going to be a capitalist. Yeah. And you have to make sense of that. If you're so damn moral, how can you do this all day? And Protestantism is there to provide a narrative. There, there's a lot to dislike about the medieval church. But one of the things to like is the idea that, like, even if they didn't follow through on it, right, like a you a, a a usurer merchant capitalist was still worried about the state of his soul right yes. like he still he still he needed had the worry. church to keep him out of hell because he knew what yes. he's done yeah he he still needed to worry that like he he runs afoul of the wrong franciscan and that guy's going to stand outside his offices screaming about how his about how his soul is going to be pecked apart by a thousand demons for all of eternity like that is there is a powerful social force in medieval Christianity that that at least says you need to feel a little bit bad about this if you're going to rip people off. Now, it it's sinful. Yeah, it didn't stop them. Like, like right. it obviously didn't stop them. But like just having to worry about it even a little bit. It was a constraint. What yeah. it was, was it was a social constraint. And then once you get Protestantism, it becomes a social compulsion. It goes into the exact opposite way. Instead of offering resistance, it compels you in the other direction and actually requires you 
to do these things, to, to do these things that were formerly sins that required you to self, as you said, to restrain yourself, to be humble uh, in your ambitions. And, and it limited the number of people who were willing to go the extra mile that re- defines the capitalist like bidding system. And uh, that's, that's, you, you get a 180 degree shift in the incentive structure uh, in the social order with Protestantism. Yeah, there's it's it's one of the things where when you talk about like when does capitalism emerge, right? And and you can go any period of history, go back to the fucking Bronze Age, and you're going to find right. capitalists, yeah, yeah, right. Like mm-hmm. you're going to find people who are recognizably doing things that we understand as as come as flowing from a capitalist mindset in terms yeah, of the, the, the productive use of assets, understanding mm-hmm. you know selling low and buying high. Like people get that. People have understood oh, yeah. that for a very long time. But when you get capitalism, I think, is only when you reach a critical mass of people saying that it's okay to rip other people off. Like, right. that, and that not just okay, but laudable. And so, so, yeah. so then Patrick and, and Matt, so this is the question then. Is capitalism without that impulse capitalism? Or is there a form of a Christianized capitalism in the 16th century that then, you know, takes, off, it takes us off in a million different directions? Yeah. Um, that's a really it's a really good question. And I there are a lot of scholars who would say no, right? Like there like Martha Howell wrote this book Commerce Before Capitalism, uh, where she writes about how you know, like you have these things that recognizably look capitalist, but without that kind of crowning um crowning ideological thing, it's not really capitalism. I I think it's close enough that you got to call it capitalism because the the relationships are there, right? And the way of thinking is there. Even and, if, the, and, the, and the medium state competitive framework isn't going yes. anywhere. And yeah. that's the thing that drives all of it. That's what drives everybody to become capitalists in spite of themselves. Uh, and that doesn't go away either. So, yeah, I think maybe you get, though, you get like greater friction to that like transition. And that means greater conflict. And that's why I think you get probably a pull away from like the creation of the dynastic powerful modern states because they kind of wear themselves into oblivion in this constant conflict with their own uh, peasant class and their own like bourgeois that cannot be resolved now. And also just to drill down on Luther, and maybe this is ridiculous, but you can imagine the Germany absent religious wars uniting hundreds of years before. So then you get another power base in continental Europe able to go up against France and the United Kingdom and then maybe do a form of internal land colonialism as the Germans always did. So what do you think the effects on Germany itself would be absent a reformation? I think that's another one of those things that depends a lot on who becomes Holy Roman Emperor. And so I think a Charles V type who was able to spend more time in the whole in, in the Holy Roman Empire, like actually, you know, riding herd on things and who wasn't constantly worried about religious warfare and having to placate one set of princes versus another, that that becomes a much more coherent block. Like there's still a lot of internal contradictions and friction within the Holy Roman Empire, right? Like it is it is an institutional nightmarish maze. Like yeah, it's it's deeply fucked by the time Luther shows up. Yeah. It, it's just like it, I mean, there are people who have spent their entire lives studying the Holy Roman Empire in the 15th and 16th centuries who still can't explain at a basic level what it is, like mm-hmm. or, or how it works. Like and and I think there's a lesson there. Um that like people who were you know existing within it couldn't make sense of it. And it, they were just kind of right. like, well I guess that's the way things are. So I think that I think that's possible, but I think it would have taken like there's an extent to which Napoleon is kind of the 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 sine qua non of of like rationalizing Germany, because you you just kind of need somebody who's going to sweep everything away and be like, okay, we're done, we're doing we're doing something new. <laughs> um, like the, there's just so much institutional resistance to any sort of change or reform in the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, if if this conflict that we're saying is still going to emerge, right? Like, mm-hmm. say there is this peasant r- resistance that uh, just rises up and cannot be contained and, and develops its own grassroots religious character wouldn't there be a kind of a natural alliance then to be had between the the emperor and the peasantry against the restive princes and the mm-hmm. fucking whiny bourgeois who are the ones pulling against the fetters of the catholic church and also the empire itself yeah. and then you have like a, a populist habsburg imperium that is able to actually uh, assert power over all of germany 
Yeah, I think that's a possible outcome, especially if you still have the Ottomans pressing in. Right. If you have, and you got to assume they'd still be there. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and again, that's the other major counterfactual in this period is what if things go very slightly different at one of the sieges of Vienna? Like, then you end up with yeah. a dramatically different. Uh, right. portrait of what of what Europe could look like. There's, I mean, Patrick, in a, in a previous episode, we already posited an Islamized Eastern Europe. <laughs> it seems like that really could have happened very easily. But yeah, like if, if we're talking about like there being like this roiling class war in Germany that is now, that is picking up steam and not being vented, you know, into a warfare that at the end of the day increased state capacity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the ability therefore to, you know, compete with the Ottomans. I mean, it was only after they sort of buffed the European, the Habsburgs had buffed themselves fighting in Europe for 30 years that they were able to come back and actually start putting a lick on the Ottomans. Like they didn't start winning until after they had nearly been destroyed fighting each other because it built this new uh, state machinery. If that's not happening because of this internal turmoil, does that not give the uh, the Ottomans this opportunity to really like cut into the belly of Europe? And if that happens, then I think that the that state competitive framework that is always there, it finally gets subsumed in like a generalized uh, 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 rallying around some sort of central authority, probably it would kind of have to be the Holy Roman Empire, Emperor against this invasion. The same, the same dynamic that kept the Chinese Empire uh, intact for two thousand years. The threat of mo- of of, uh, of nomadic uh, horsemen at your northern frontier. The Ottomans play that role in this scenario and actually force like a a European uh, sort of European wide uh, a real Holy League. With like actual sovereign authority at the top. Yeah, I think what you probably end up with is the is one of the kings of France becoming Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, you, yeah, it have to be headquartered in France. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's the richest, largest, most populous kingdom. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. that, I think that's probably what you end up with, and that doesn't mean that dynastic rivalries go away. But if you have, if you're faced with the threat of annihilation and extinction, it's not going to be the Pope because. The Pope, regardless of regardless of Luther, leaving Luther aside, the Pope is increasingly just an Italian prince with a fancy hat, right? Yeah. Like that's you know the moral authority of the papacy, one way or the other, is effectively is effectively gone by the time Luther's publishing that's uh, publishing this stuff anyway. Like nobody is nobody is really taking the Pope that seriously as a moral arbiter by fifteen seventeen. Okay, so say we get. In this no loser world, with like a increased conflict within polities and an increased threat from the Ottomans, instead of the Charles V being the, uni- the would be universal monarch, it's Francis I, mm-hmm. and he's actually successful uh, where uh, Charles was unable to uh, succeed. That that's that's another really fascinating one. Is what if Jakob Fugger doesn't come through? Like, what if Maximilian, the uh, the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian, dies a little bit earlier before he's able to make arrangements to get Jakob Fugger to make the loans to Charles based on hawking his Spanish properties to purchase the office? Then it's definitely Francis the first, and suddenly the map of Europe, like the history of Europe at that point, looks a lot different. Yeah. Like that's like. Do you get a proto Napoleon? I mean, do you, I, it just seems like someone would absent Luther sweep over part of Germany or incorporate Germany in a more coherent way. And it would have to that be France. Basically, yeah. was made impossible. Yeah, yeah. So then you get you get these gigantic plower box. It would be a refusing of the old Holy Roman Emperor, which was the center of gravity was was in France, and it shifted over the centuries into Germany, but it was started off being centered in France itself. Yeah. So at this moment, you would get a Franco-German alliance, the Ottomans in the East, you would get a burgeoning United Kingdom. How do you think that would affect the future of European colonialism, which is happening at this exact moment with an entirely new power arrangement of of, uh, Europe? I think you'd probably get some sort of Protestant-style reformation vastly later and in uh, the Low Countries in England, Mm -hmm. like headquartered there. Yeah. Uh, because eventually, just you'd have such a uh, such a, uh, a, a critical mass of, of uh, urbanized, literate people, and and a, a critical mass of crisis and conflict and resistance to a centralizing authority. That I think you get some sort of a language, something like uh, like Protestant, uh, like capitalist infused Protestantism, to emerge then, but like much later, and and probably much less able to assert authority over the rest of Europe. Although who knows, maybe there's this flight to early colonialism from like the, the early capitalist uh, low countries in uh, United Kingdom. 
right, do you get colonialism, basically? Or, or what? I think you do, but what is that character of that colonialism absent a reformation? I mean, I think you end up with globalized, you definitely end up with globalized capitalism, right? Like the center of financial gravity running between London, Antwerp, and the and and the rest of the low countries is not like that's not going to change um like the the there's no changing the fact that the north sea is going to be the, is going to be the the kind of the major commercial and financial entrepot of the the rest of the 16th and 17th centuries so i think you still end up with that being the place where global cash is funneled through and like it's hard to overstate in this period the extent to which like london and the low countries are basically one thing and the rest of England is kind of off doing its own right. other stuff. Like the, like those places are tied to London, but commercially the relationship is London and the low countries. And so like the ties are just too tight there. I mean, like the, the merchant communities are essentially one community of people. They all know each other, right? Like that's all like, this is all one world. And so th- when the reforming stuff is happening in the 16th century and in our normal timeline, those are the networks that it's flowing along is, you know, a merchant in Antwerp sending a copy of Luther's writings to a merchant in London. So when there's so when this reform stuff is happening, like that's how it's happening to start with, like that's not going anywhere, Luther or not, you know. But the character to me, and maybe I'm wrong, still is very different. Oh, yeah. Then yeah, you yeah. have that pre- because I mean, I, I do see the Reformation as providing pressure for colonialism. It, it, it's a it's a way to sort of um, th- those peasant wars that break out in the first half of the 16th century. One of the reasons that they're that they're ended is that you're able to send people places. And so absent that sort of same pressure, I'm not sure if colonialism proceeds in the exact same way. But maybe I'm, I'm missing something there. I think you still get North American English colonies. Uh, Dutch ones too, but how w- well they're able to uh, extend that, how, how, how far they're able to push it, how many resources they're able to uh, devote in a context where they are facing like a continental hegemon and not a bunch of other moderate, uh, like relatively similar sized states in a general competitive framework with one another. I don't know. You, you wonder in that context, too, whether um, Spanish colonization ends up as a much more state-directed project rather than rather than the form it actually took, right? The, the Spanish were kind of notoriously lax about right. what they what the, fir- the first generation of conquistadors about, you know, exercising control over them. Does the Spanish colonial project look more like the Portuguese one, where it's a direct arm of the state that's being tightly controlled from by, you know, kind of a clique of civil merchants who are like – in, in working in close cahoots with the crown instead of it being like you know a bunch of uh, a bunch of second son psychopaths running off and tearing down new world empires we will then control all of new spain and we will stage history as others stage plays that's kind of another interesting counterfactual and what if the assuming even those those conquests still happen what if you aren't funneling that money into just like just immediately pouring it down the drain of of massive tra- like trans-european warfare like the the treasures of the inca are literally immediately melted down and used to pay soldiers like mm-hmm. they don't even like right. don't even sit there for for weeks before they're used to pay soldiers like that's a much different looking europe too the one that doesn't the one that isn't so uh, kind of wastefully invested in the uh, military uh, sector. (laughs) So on that note, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. This was great. Thank you for having me. It's it's wonderful talking to y'all. 